Well, welcome everyone uh, to tonight's session in our field guide for aspiring chaplain series. This is our final sort of installment for the fall season. We'll kick back up in January, but uh, we're going to close off for now. Uh, and tonight's session is specifically on combining chaplaincy with another career. And we know that this is something that a lot of folks um, are interested in chaplaincy, but they don't really know if, if you know, doing it full time is, is realistic or a possibility. Um, and the answer is you can do lots of things with it. Uh, and in some cases, it's just the sort of the type of chaplaincy that folks want to do. There isn't a full-time position out there, or maybe you like where you are, but you want to do chaplaincy in addition or, or cut down what you do now and add chaplaincy to it. There's lots of reasons that folks combine chaplaincy with something else. And so we have uh, three panelists here who have experience in this area. Uh, they're going to tell us a little bit about how they ended up where they are and how they have managed to make this work. It, it involves a little bit of juggling, and so they're going to tell us um, a little bit how that works. Once we hear from our three panelists, we'll have a public Q&A toward the end of the hour, and then at nine o'clock, we turn off the recording, we turn off all of that, and then we can break out into, into small groups where you can speak with one of our panelists if you like. You don't have to. Everyone's free to go whenever they like. Um, so this is a very casual, informal event. I'll just remind everyone this is being recorded, and so if you need to leave early or if, if someone misses a point that you want to follow up on, don't worry about it. You don't have to try to scurry back. You will get the recording here in the next couple of days um, and everybody will be able to sort of get caught up that way. So with that, let me turn it to our first panelist, Omari Ahrens over at Boston University. Omari, welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's, it's good to be here and a good Evening, everyone. I think it's evening uh, from where everyone would be uh, calling in from now. This time zone thing is, is always interesting. Uh, I'm Omari Ahrens. I'm a second year student at uh, Boston University School of Theology uh, here in Boston. Um, I am originally from Washington, DC and most of my career actually had been uh, in corporate America in the human resources space. And so, uh, I like to say that I've, I've spent my entire career thinking about what people want and need. Uh, and then three years ago, I guess now, uh, accepted my call to preach. And so I started uh, on the path of uh, working toward ordination in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, so I am two years into that process. Um, Lord willing, my first ordination is coming up uh, in April at our annual conference for New England. Um, and, uh, and then two more years remaining, remaining after that. Um, I, I started um, after I left corporate America or as I was leaving corporate America, I started a, a workplace consulting firm called the Aaron's Group. And so that had me working with a, a number of clients on um, uh, building out employee resource groups within their workplace, helping them build a diversity, equity, inclusion plan, helping them uh, reach different targets, tar target audience and do sponsorships, just, just a number of things. And as you all can imagine, uh, in this post-George Floyd world, uh, the demand for DEI practitioners has really just gone through, through the roof. So Aaron's group was keeping me busy. Uh, I was a full-time seminarian and uh, Boston University requires us to do contextual education. Uh, and so like, like most people, I put it off uh, until the very last minute. And I got one of those warning notes that said, you need to have a meeting with some folks. Um, and so I, I met with one of the directors of Contextual Ed, who's actually now our uh, Dean uh, of Community Life. 
And I said, you know, I really don't know what I want to do. And so she was like, well, tell me your story. Tell me about your calling and um, where are you and where do you see yourself going? And so I was talking through all of that. She asked me if I had considered chaplaincy. And uh, in particular, she was thinking about um, the need for corporations to have people inside uh, of organizations. She had just been in a conversation with someone about the, the need for that. And she said, you know, your corporate HR background uh, would make you kind of an ideal candidate for going in that direction. And so I said, all right, well, how do I do this chaplaincy thing? And she's like, oh, you need, you need to go to CPE and uh, <laughs> do all this other stuff. All these terms I hadn't really heard of before. So I said, okay. Um, and I was very fortunate. Uh, I, I called up uh, you know, Boston Medical Center and uh, talked to our CPE director there. Um, Reverend Dr. Jenny Gold. And, um, you know, just in that first conversation with her, uh, you know, just asked, oh, do you have any openings? And she's like, uh, it's, it's March, you know, and you're applying for a summer CPE uh, in March. Some of you are laughing. So I think you, you know exactly how far behind I was, but, which I consider all God's good graces, just kind of uh, directing me in the, in the right way. Um, and so, you know, doing the work, particularly doing CPE as an intensive unit over the summer is um, full time. You know, you are, you are there uh, nine to whenever, right? Um, and as we, as some of you know, from being in chaplain roles, um, your end time really depends on what is going on uh, <laughs> uh, at, at that particular moment in time. Um, and so there would, there would be times where it was me and one other person uh, to serve the entire hospital. Um, had on-call shifts on nights and on, a, on weekends as well. And the key thing I, I would say that I found um, in terms of balance between the, the two roles, when I did workshops or programs while I was uh, at Boston Medical Center, I was always very clear with my clients, uh, you know, here's, here's what I'm doing. Um, my situation was a little bit unique in the fact that I, I was kind of working two full-time roles, but most of my consulting projects over the course of the summer allowed me, um, I could do that work kind of at night uh, or, or off kind of a nine to five with some occasional meetings. And so my site supervisor was wonderful about uh, flexibility that I needed to be able to, to do that. And as I've thought about um, how I make this work really kind of going forward, Certainly uh, having uh, open and transparent conversations around availability, um, what is on my plate for the week, what's happening kind of in the life of me, what's happening in the life of the hospital, what's happening in the life of my clients. Um, I would say that has been kind of my number one um, key to success uh, of how I, I think I would say I survived the summer uh, successfully. So I'll, I'll stop there and um, Look forward to taking questions and um, sharing more as we go. Thank you very much, Omari. And I am sincerely hoping that there was no interruption on your end. My other computer just dropped out completely. <laughs> so um, I hope everybody was able to sort of keep talking. Uh, thank you very much, Omari. Uh, Bonnie Jean up at Phillips Exeter, let's turn to you. We'll hear from you and then we'll do Q&A all together uh, at the end. Hi, folks. How are you this evening? Thanks for joining us and, and tuning in. Um, my name is Bonnie Jean Casey. I am a Unitarian Universalist minister. And um, my understanding, um, my connection with Michael goes back 
several years ago when I wrote him an email having to do with uh, his look at uh, the nuns and the growing population of people who identified um, with a non-tradition or multiple religious belonging, um, MRB, um, you may have heard that term. Um, my understanding about this panel is that we've been asked to share with you how we've um, crafted our jobs. Um, and I, I think it's a, a wonderful topic because if you had asked me even 10 years ago what I'd be doing today, I never would have imagined that I would be um, uh, still combining my love of teaching and with my love of pastoral care um, in the way that I am as my role as director of religious and spiritual life at an independent boarding school up in New Hampshire at Phillips Exeter. Um, I was ordained about 25 years ago and I spent 10 years in parish ministry. I served congregations in Wisconsin and Philadelphia. And my um, professional religious odyssey um, really shifted after 9-11. I was serving a congregation in Philadelphia and um, we had two members of the congregation that had connections to people who had lost their lives in the World Trade Center towers. Uh, it took me about two years actually to put together a plan um, where I had sort of gone through this process of discernment about whether or not I stayed in my own tradition or whether or not I intentionally chose to decenter myself theologically and, um, and sort of wander out into the larger theological world with really the, the notion that the world just needed better religious literacy, not necessarily biblical literacy, although that would be part of it, um, in order to build religious tolerance. And so that was as amorphous as my game plan was um, almost 20 years ago. And that was very different for me because when I entered the ministry, I felt pretty directed. And so I'm sharing that because um, I think sometimes in our careers, we feel a very intentional sense of calling. And then other times in our careers, we're straining to hear that soft voice. And, um, and it gets quickly clouded out um, by the din of the urgency of now, the need to um, make money, to be honest, um, and balancing of, of family. So um, what happened for me is I decided that I really wanted to go into higher education. So I ended up going into campus ministry and chaplaincy. Um, I worked at Wellesley College, then at Babson College, and most recently at Simmons University in Boston. And in all of those roles and all of those, um, I, I was sort of the director of different um, interfaith programs during those years. Um, and then recently I had another point of discernment where I just really wanted to get more hands-on teaching experience. 
So, um, so that led me down um, from higher ed into secondary school education. Um, the, the other thing I guess I would share is when I, when I first did my MDiv um, at HDS in the 90s, um, I happened, they, at the time they had a program there, which was called um, the Program in Religious and Secondary Education. I don't know if anyone is familiar with that program. Um, and even from an early age, I was, I guess I didn't, I didn't know it then, but I was hybriding the, uh, the uh, notion of teaching with the notion of um, ministry. And by dint of different roles, I've had to do different things, whether it's been facility management, um, interfaith programming, um, pastoral care, but my real love was teaching. And um, it took me a long way, a long, you know, many years to kind of wander back um, to that road of teaching under the aegis of interfaith programming and um, religious pluralism. But, um, you know, but so be it. So um, I'll also say the thing for me with combining careers is I've always, um, and maybe this is why Michael, I don't know, asked me because um, I don't know how many of you are, know Wendy, Wendy Cadge also, but um, I, I've always had sort of a side gig, you know, um, in, in Boston, I, I, uh, I, I, I was a landlord <laughs> and, um, and I've always prepared taxes for people. Um, I love numbers, just a weird part of what I like to do. So um, I also have an MBA in my background and I've always been able to, so I, I love church budgets. I love nonprofit management piece, but that's, I've never led with that. I've always led with more of the pastoral care and um, religious education. But I, when I think about combining careers, I think, why are we even limiting ourselves to one or two things? Um, you know, I have a, a, a buddy who's a UCC pastor who, um, you know, really has two or three other talents that he, he uh, relies on for, um, you know, for, for a larger paycheck, but also just because he loves those other talents that he has. So I guess I'm sharing that with you um, in, in the space of thinking beyond the normal, um, the way we might think about ministry and calling um, as a one-to-one -one ratio. If, if we take seriously that we're, we have sort of multiple selves inside of each one of us, then I would imagine there might be spaces, whether it's um, serially or simultaneously, that we're called to do different things throughout throughout our career. Um, and so, as you uh, later on, I'll be interested to hearing hear some of your uh, journeys and see whether or not um, some of what I've shared about mine resonates or or not with you. But um, but I'm glad to be here and thank you, Michael, for um, inviting us to speak. Very much. And, and I feel like we could ask five follow-up questions about everything you just said. <laughs> um, and I want everyone to, to bear something in mind that you just said and just kind of hold it. 
you said the phrase a larger paycheck. And I'm so glad you said that. I want to go back to that. Uh, we're going to come back to that. But until then, uh, Lindsay, uh, let's turn to you. Hi, I'm um, Lindsay Popperson. I am a nursing home chaplain at Cheryl House um, Nursing and um, Rehabilitation um, in Jamaica Plain, which is where I live, a neighborhood of Boston. Um, I'm also the associate pastor at Old North Church Marblehead, which is a UCC church um, in on Marblehead, which is the um, North Shore of Massachusetts. Um, I got my Master's of Divinity at Boston University School of Theology. Um, it is um, the best theology school in the Boston area. So really sorry, Bonnie Jean. <laughs> But we have a we have a strong I have a strong love for BU. Oh, I my, my doctorate is from BU, so I'm, oh, I'm good. In there. Okay, yeah, okay, good. And I don't know I don't know all of you who are um, here where you are in your lives. I need you to know that Boston University paid me to get my MDiv at BU. I paid zero cents to get my MDiv at BU. The tuition was fully covered, and I got a stipend. That's not, and I was one of like a couple dozen people um, in a class of about um, seventy who had who got stipends on top of things being covered. I need people who are thinking about getting MDivs to know that it is possible to do it without going into debt and that you should do it without going into debt because you're going to be a minister or a chaplain or whatever. Um, and we talked about the paychecks. So we don't all have, we don't all have side gigs in, in the corporate world. <laughs> um, yet. Um, so I, um, didn't really know at all what I was going to be doing when I was going into um, div school. I just knew, I knew that it was going to be ministry. My, I grew up, my mother um, has worked as a recreation person at um, nursing homes and assisted living homes for my whole life. And so I grew up volunteering around elders and just loved loved everything about um, that. Um, I love my tradition, the UCC. Um, I was started um, volunteering at the nursing home where I now work when I was getting my MDiv um, just to get some like volunteer experience. Um, and then when I Right before I graduated from BU, I started a job at a UCC church, a halftime job doing um, Christian education stuff. And then about a year after that, um, this job um, at the nursing home opened up. It had been a full-time position, but then they, um, because it's a nonprofit um, nursing home and um, chaplaincy in a nursing home is a non-reimbursable service. Nurses get reimbursed for the hours they do social workers or the business gets reimbursed um, for the hours that nurses and social workers and other people do. Insurance will reimburse that, but that's not true for um, chaplaincy. And so in that setting, um, so they needed to cut it down to a, a halftime job. So it's a 164 bed place and there's one half of a chaplain there. Um, and so that's what I do for my chaplaincy. I do a lot of, it's a lot of sitting with people and listening to them. I lead worship services. I lead a rosary group. 
I lead a poetry group. Um, I hang out with people while they're dying or after they've died. Um, I talk to people's families around death. Um, I do a lot of talking to people's families right after their parent ends up, usually if the parent ends up in the nursing home, it's a really, really hard transition. Um, and I'm sure that some of you have had to do that transition um, with people um, who are in your family and that's really tough. Um, so I'm at the nursing home three days a week is how my schedule works out now. Um, and then I'm at the church all day Sunday, all day Wednesday. And then I do, you know, evening meetings a couple nights a week and write sort of on my own time um, for church. And one of the things that I know about myself is that I'm someone whose mind um, really thrives when I can be switching between a lot of things. So I think I'm a better pastor because I'm a nursing home chaplain. And I think I'm a better chaplain because I'm also a pastor, um, that I'm, I'm staying fresh and I'm um, learning new things. And I'm applying this to that and that to this. Um, I also just have a, a deep, a deep passion specifically for elder care chaplaincy work. And if any of you have any um, thoughts or interests in elder care chaplaincy, that's something I'd love to connect with. We live in a culture that um, really idolizes youth. Um, and it's very easy for people to think that, um, that nursing homes are places where we warehouse folks until they die. Um, and what I see every single day that I'm there is a whole lot of living. I see people trying to continue to make meaning in their life. I see people continuing to find beauty. I see people who are still very eager to connect. Um, that's true of people who are cognitively intact and that's true of people who are in the final stages of dementia. Um, I think that I'm a better human because I spend so much of my time um, with people who are at the end of their life. Um, yeah, so that's that's some of how um, how I am here because Michael did um, raise the paycheck point. Um, part of how I think of it, it's a nonprofit. Um, nursing home that I work at, I get paid $22 an hour to be a chaplain there, um, which is about $10 lower than um, the average of what that job would be. Um, and the only reason I can do that is because my church is paying me a good amount of money. That's not always true that churches um, are doing that, but I really see um, my church is subsidizing my um, work in the nursing home. And also this is important part of how it works. So the church is subsidizing that. Um, and my church is um, a very affluent, very white community. And um, I do not believe that Jesus called me to only serve affluent people and to only serve white people. Um, and the nursing home where I work is 90% Medicaid um, people. We've got folks from all over. Um, and so to me, it feels really important to my soul to be spending some time among people um, who are a little more like the least of these than um, the folks at my church. Thank you very much for, for that. I mean, just everything that you're doing is so interesting. And I really appreciate your honesty. Look, this is how much I get paid. That is something that I think a lot of folks that are looking to get into spiritual care, they want to know the answer to that question. But 
of course, everyone has hangups around money. We don't want to ask that question. How much money can I make as a chaplain? Um, it's a really important question because you have to be able to do things like pay your bills. Um, you can't provide spiritual care for people if you can't house and feed yourself. Um, that's really important. So thank you all, all three of you, uh, for these really interesting stories of how you ended up there. And what I take away is that not everybody has to go through this really traditional, you know, you go BA, MDiv, then maybe you do a DMIT or something, you get ordained and boom, there you go. No, 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 it's not, it's not always that straight path uh, to spiritual care. There are lots of ways to get there. So I want to ask just a couple of really quick questions. And then, of course, this is for, this is not about me. This is about our, the folks that are with us tonight. So please, um, you can put your questions in the, in the chat or you can raise your hand or whatever. Let me just ask a couple while folks are thinking about that. I'm curious how, how you all sort of talk about this work with sort of the other audience. So just to give an example, Lindsay, how do you talk about chaplaincy with folks on the Old North Church ministry team? Or Bonnie Jean, how do you talk about chaplaincy with folks that are not doing chaplaincy work? Because you're right in the middle of, this, of these two worlds and they don't always understand each other very well. So I'm, under, I'm wondering how you sort of bridge that gap. Um, I, I mean, there's the logistical side of it um, that, uh, you know, people know, you know, the folks who are in my office at church know that it's like, okay, here's when I'm at the nursing home and like, yeah, if you text me a quick question, like you forgot to tell me your sermon title, I can do that. But no, I can't come to a meeting on Tuesday morning. Um, but I also, I really delight, I think because I care so much about the elders who I minister to and care so much about lifting up the life that I see there, I end up preaching about, um, my nursing home ministry a fair amount, um, so that people know about that, um, and hear about that. I would, I would say for me, um, uh, my church, my church, particularly for us in the ordination process, it's very much geared toward pastoring. Um, our, our internal ministerial institute, very much like you're going to go through seminary and then you're going to be a pastor. It's very much that traditional path. So the chaplaincy thing, I think we're still learning. Um, <laughs> we're still learning how to how to talk about. It. I'm fortunate that I'm in a conference with a number of pastors who have served as volunteer chaplains and one pastor who actually just became a board certified chaplain. And so there are other conversations that were going on around uh, chaplaincy that I that were happening way before I even started this journey um, that I'm that I'm benefiting from. I would say, though, my the biggest obstacle. Uh, I, I primarily was working in the surgical ICU um, over the summer in, in the hospital. And so that is uh, mostly people who have come in through the emergency room. Uh, so people who, you know, 98% of the people that I worked with uh, did not have a plan to be in the hospital. Uh, they weren't there for a routine surgery, and they're just recovering. These are people who had strokes, um, who might be a gunshot victim, who had a heart attack, who were in a car accident, that sort of thing. And so it is stepping into trauma. Um, quite literally, every room that you walk into, there's there's a story. And I, and I always say to people, I have a lot of stories from the summer, none of them ever start well, um, right? There, there are several that have really good endings, um, but none of them start, you know, I'm like, 
So I walked in this room with, you know, these two sons and their father was dying. It's like, it's, it's not, they're not party stories um, to, to be able to share with people. And the thing that um, I had to really work through was how I held that and who could I talk to about it so that I was not uh, vicariously bringing people into trauma. And so one of the things with my partner, uh, we got to the, to the point, my, my first day at work, I had a, a, a patient uh, who passed. So it was like day one on the job. And so I was like, okay, there is no training for this. You just kind of jump in. And where I got to with my partner was, um, we would say like, tell me one thing, uh, tell me one story from, from the day. And that was how uh, I was able to share about the experience. I could pick a story, um, no matter what was going on, what, that I wanted to be able to tell that I could talk through um, and felt comfortable sharing. You know, I think, uh, Omari, what you just mentioned about, on the one hand, you're, you're in a, a, on an ordination track that presumes congregational ministry. Um, it's really difficult to, to bridge this gap because of what you just said. Day one, someone died. Um, every, every day you went to work, you're there to see someone who has been through or is experiencing severe trauma. Um, I realize that I'm sort of making a caricature here, but it's really hard to go from that to what is my sermon going to be on Sunday or, or whatever. I mean, the, the, these two are not the same things. <laughs> um, and it, it can be hard to sort of transition uh, in and out of those two worlds. John has a really great question here. And, and um, I suspect all three of you have some perspective on this. Um, how competitive is chaplaincy? That is, is there a surplus of chaplains or are there too few chaplains? For the openings that are available, that's a really great question, and I think it's going to just sort of rely on on your all's personal knowledge of the job market, so to speak, for chaplaincy. I have no idea. I have no idea. Bonnie Jean, you might be the best person to answer this. I can speak from from the the CPE perspective. Um, clinical pastoral education is extremely competitive, uh, getting into sites. And of course, um, sites that are in metropolitan areas um, are a little bit harder to get into uh, because they are spots where people want to, they generally want to be there. Um, and so um, there are several people that move around to complete their education requirements uh, for CPE to, to get into a residency program, uh, to complete an internship year, to do an additional year additional units. Um, and so uh, those can be hard. That's my, my story of getting into CPE and applying in March for a, for a May role. Um, I remember when I kind of mentioned that to uh, some of the people I was doing CPE with over the summer and they were like, wait, what? You know, like we started in September. Um, and so now that I'm actually on the regular track for applying the way that it's supposed to be, I'm, I'm realizing just how fortunate I was um, to be able to, to get in. That was very much a right time, right place kind of God moment. Um, so CPE is very competitive and most chaplain jobs um, would like someone who's either ordained in a tradition who can get an ecclesiastical um, endorsement um, or and or have completed um, at least two or three units of uh, CPE as well. So 
that also becomes one of the barriers to entering uh, entering the the chaplaincy world because most CPE programs are are unpaid. Uh, I, I was just going to uh, chime in. Thanks, Omari um, and Lindsay. I I think it depends. I think the competitiveness. Every job right now is pretty competitive. I mean, even though you you know you hear how um, there are job openings all all over, uh, that it it's it, it depends what form of chaplaincy you want to go into. If you're in, if it's military chaplaincy, that has its own parameters. Um, I happen to choose uh, education. And I was lucky in that way because it was still institutionally bound. So um, I agree with Omari that one of the credentials that's incredibly helpful is the ordination. Not necessary, but what it means is that you have um, an, another, a denomination standing behind you and endorsing you and that you're accountable to. And that's incredibly important, I would argue in chaplaincy, because it's one thing to be accountable to, you know, say the school that I'm working for. But I think what makes us really strong in our work is that we have another level of accountability. And we're, we're in a crisis of accountability right now, where power, power structures, powerful people are going around wielding their power without being accountable. And so I, I see as in all good ministry, I think um, part of our job is modeling, not even, and part of modeling is getting comfortable with all sorts of boundaries and things that bind, bind us in a good way in the sense that religion is binding. So, um, so I would say all forms of chaplaincy that I know of um, are incredibly competitive, but um, I don't, don't let that deter you. Don't let that deter you because opportunities arise that you can't imagine. And everybody, everybody is making decisions about their lives and other people's lives with less than complete information, right? And so, so, so part of the journey, part of the leap is, is knowing that you don't know it all. Um, so, and of course that has to be balanced with who was it? Um, I think it was Allie, um, you know, saying like, you know, how do you even plan for retirement? I don't think I really, um, I'm in my fifties now. I've been doing ministry since I was 27 in some form. I don't, and even though I've always been giving to some sort of retirement plan, I don't think I've actively been planning for retirement really until 40, until I was 40. Um, I just didn't, I didn't have that luxury, to be honest. I, I just, you know, was living pay, paycheck to paycheck and um, 
for me, the way I chose to do it, and I also just got lucky, was, uh, you know, buying small apartments in Boston because I liked that work. You know, I, I um, I'm, I would, I really like plumbing. I can do electrical work. I just, I had a lot of brothers growing up. I just have those talents. So to me, that was fun, <laughs> but that's odd. <laughs> Um, but so whatever it is that you might find fun, I think, I think one of the great things about making ministry a vocation is it allows you um, eventually to put time and energy into your avocations. Um, you have to be careful with boundaries of time. And I will say this, I'm, I'm very strict about that. Um, you know, I have young kids. Um, I, I really am clear um, about when I'm on, when I'm off, my out of office messages. Um, so that also is, um, is a really good skill in the ministry. Um, you don't want to, you don't want to give it away for free, as we say, <laughs> you know. So, um, so part of that is being able to, um, to manage oneself, not to do that. You know, that the, the giving it away uh, or maybe even undervaluing it, so much of that is tied to whether if, if you happen to be in an institution, does that institution understand the value of chaplaincy and value the work of chaplains in the way that it should be? There are some institutions that are happy to hire a chaplain, but they don't really know what spiritual care is. And they think, well, th this person is a minister, so we, we can probably pay them you know, $20,000 and that's no big deal, right? They're a minister. You don't have to settle for that. Uh, maybe that's reasonable for you. That's fine. But you don't have to settle for that. Um, and I would really encourage folks, get curious and get persistent wherever you are. That, that question of competitiveness and the supply and demand sort of thing in the job market, it really depends on so many things. What kind of chaplaincy do you want to do? Where are you in the country? Are you willing to move? Are you not willing to move? You have to take all of this into account and you can't really find that out until you go and find that information yourself because no one's going to give it to you. I hate to, I hate to tell you, but um, you know, if you want to be a healthcare chaplain, fine, start calling hospitals, literally start calling hospitals. You want to be a college chaplain, start calling colleges, get curious, find out. Now, one thing that you have to keep in mind is that depending on the type of chaplains that you want to do, the educational and other requirements can differ enormously enormously. So Bonnie Jean mentioned being a military chaplain, that it is set in stone, it is clear cut, here are the rules, do it or don't. But if you want to be a chaplain who's working in maybe social justice ministry, um, in some educational settings, the requirements are slim to none, and you bring your best self to it. So that that really makes a difference as well. Get curious, start asking questions. And let, I'll get out of the way. Let me say one more thing. All of our sessions of this have been recorded. They're all on the website. Go back and watch them. Uh, we have an entire session on endorsement. What is endorsement? And what happens if I'm from a tradition that doesn't endorse? Um, what if I'm from a tradition that doesn't ordain? How do I become a chaplain if that's not possible? So a lot of those questions, we answer them or we have our panelists answer them. You can go back and see all of that. Um, and then also when you get the recording for this, I'll send what we call our beginner's guide to chaplaincy. And it really breaks things down at a fundamental level. What is certification? What is ordination? What is CPE? How do I do these things to try to help walk you through what is a really messy and complicated 
uh, path for, for a lot of folks. Lindsay, I think you were going to say something, so let me get out of the way. Um, yeah, I just wanted to note um, that it is um, that you should be really uh, clear about where it is that you want to, or once you get an idea about where you want to um, be a chaplain, to look at the job, um, like go on Indeed or where, you know, Idealist or wherever you're looking for jobs and see what they're looking for for people, because um, I often will see people saying like, oh, well, if you want to be a chaplain, you have to be board certified. I'm not board certified. I've been a chaplain for five years. I wasn't ordained when I got my job. I'm probably never going to be board certified because I don't have the time to put in a bunch of extra work that I don't need for the job that I have. Um, but there are other, you know, if I wanted to be a staff chaplain at Brigham and Women's Hospital, I would probably need to be moving towards board, board certification. Um, so that's just to, that most hospices aren't requiring board certification of chaplains and most long-term care facilities aren't requiring board certification of chaplains. So um, for people who cannot spend a year of their life paying to do learning, um, that's good to know. You know. Bonnie Jean mentioned, and I think she just stepped away for a moment, mentioned that we're all doing this or you're all doing this uh, with incomplete information. The lab is trying to give you as much information as we possibly can. Right now we are working on analysis of a, sur a national survey of what does it cost to become a chaplain? You know, what does it cost to go to school, go through CPE, all the processes? What does it cost? And what does the, what does the payment situation look like on the other side? Because people need this information. <laughs> you need to be able to make a decision um, with as much financial information uh, as possible along the way. Um, let's ask, there are a couple other questions here. How do you find balance juggling between your chaplaincy work and working in other areas? Uh, does flexibility exist? That's a good question. Um, how difficult is it, I guess, is the, is the right question. Um, no one will set your boundaries for you, okay? In any area of life, no one will set your boundaries for you. A church isn't gonna set your boundaries for you. If any of you have parents, if any of you are parents or have parents, your parents aren't gonna set your boundaries for you and your kids aren't gonna set your boundaries for you, right? Um, your job sure as hell isn't gonna set your boundaries for you because you wanna know what your job wants of you every single minute of your time, everything you're willing to give it, right? So don't be disappointed when all of these other people aren't setting your boundaries because there is exactly one person in the world who is responsible for setting your boundaries. And I want you to point to that person. Who's that person? That's right. <laughs> um, and and that setting those boundaries is a not just a gift to yourself. The fact that I hold really good boundaries is a gift to um, my church. It's a gift to the elders that I serve. It's a gift to my family. It's a gift to my friends. Um, and so I think that if you are looking for a church or another or your job to um, set those boundaries for you, it's not gonna happen. I think that there's often more flexibility than you expect, especially for me with one of my jobs being parish ministry, there's a ton of flexibility in parish ministry, right? There's one hour a week that I need to be there. Everything else sort of changes around. 
Um, and with chaplaincy, I have always said at my particular place, I've been able to just set my hours and to say, this is when I'm coming. And when that changes, just be like, oh, actually now my schedule is whatever. Um, and that's not true in all places, but, um, but there is flexibility that can be found. But the, the best thing that has suited me is to learn how to be really honest with myself about the fact that I'm not infinite. I really wish I was. I hope that someday I will become infinite. But as of yet, I am not infinite. And I need to really level with myself about that and say, what do I have the capacity for? What's really important to me? And how do I invest in that and let some other things fly? I, I, I love that, Lindsay. And I love what uh, Bonnie Jean, you set us up very well for, for this question on boundaries uh, with your, your last comment. Um, I, I think in particular, I, I would imagine everyone here is doing some sort of ministry or, or your interest in chaplaincy is growing out of some existing ministry that, that you're doing in some way. What I think we know about doing ministry is that it's the combination of head and heart work, right? And so... Um, our heart in particular really wants to pour out into our calling, right? Like God's given us these gifts and these talents, and we are not supposed to keep them and hoard them for ourselves. We're supposed to give them and sow them in, into the world. Um, and that is really why the boundary piece is so important because uh, God also does not want us pouring from an empty cup, right? And so uh, we need boundaries for our personal time. We need boundaries for our family time. We need boundaries uh, for the other roles that we are managing. Um, I sit on two boards. Uh, I was leading another organization as well. Uh, you know, over the summer, I was, I'm just, I was a little, I was going a little stir crazy because it was a lot that was happening all really in the same space. And we all have the same amount of hours in the, in the day. Right. Um, and so when I started, when I started the role, I was not using my time well. And I thought that I had really good boundaries um, if you had asked me in April, going into the experience that, you know, how, how I did with boundaries, I would have told you after 15 years of, of corporate HR, my boundaries are set up very well. Um, but I, I always felt like, generally speaking, I could walk out of work when, uh, when I needed to. I did not always feel that I could walk out of situations while I was in the hospital. And so part of what I had to learn was uh, based on who was around, um, that situation there looks like that might be, you know, a stretch into the night situation. And what I have on my plate right now says that I shouldn't take that one. Somebody else who actually has the capacity to do that should actually take that particular patient, that family, be with them to walk them with them through the experience. The other thing was, um, and I had to step out of my own way, we, we had a on-call schedule. Uh, so people that were available, you know, 6 p.m. till 8 a.m. Um, that was set up. And there were times that I started with a family uh, and the situation runs now at 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. And what I had to also learn to do was trust the system, right? That um, it actually was not about me being there, that other people had gifts and talents. And so if it wasn't me, somebody else would be able to come in and do it that the nursing staff and the physician staff that we had, right, uh, everybody from who was greeting people and sending them into the hospital were also executing on their ministry gifts as well. Like, so it all was not on my shoulders. <laughs> and that's, that's another thing about our calling and in terms of setting these boundaries, we're willing to, or not setting boundaries well, is we're, we're so willing to pour out 
but we have to remember that just as much as we are called to use our gifts, there are other people called to use theirs too. And nature abhors a vacuum. God will send the right people to be in that room, in that moment with people when they need it. And that happens when I'm, when I'm not there, just as much as it happens when I am there. And I, I want to note that so much of the, of the structure of spiritual care in the U.S. is really predicated historically on, you know, white Christian religion. That's what chaplaincy was for a very long time. Uh, and so the, the structures of education and training arose out of that foundation. It is so important to note that the vision that we see of the future of spiritual care does not assume that. So some of you are thinking, I don't check any of these boxes. Good. Fine. Um, and if you find yourself in a situation where you are not welcomed, you need to raise that up or go somewhere else because there is a place for you in spiritual care. Um, one of the things that we that I hear all the time, I get emails all the time. I really feel called to accompany people in this way, but I'm an atheist. What do I what do I do? You can do that. You can still do it. The or the number of organizations that are helping train folks like that, they're small, but they are growing. Uh, there are more and more of them every year. We'll get you connected. Uh, and so if you feel like, you know, you don't fit into these really obvious categories, that's fine. Um, there are people out there who will help you sort of figure out how to get into that and solve and solve some of those problems directly. Um, Phil asked a question on uh, application timelines for CBE residencies. Thank you, Phil. That's, that's such a great nuts and bolts question. So Lindsay put a, a link in the chat that has sort of a, a sample, Brigham and Women's is a, you know, they're a good place to follow if you're looking for samples. Uh, so, so definitely check that out uh, as well. I am a fan of the Omari plan, but I, but I, <laughs> But I, but I, but I will say, planning in advance is also it's it's really good. And in retrospect, um, I, I do wish that I had had uh, a little bit more time to prepare. Right, I was at the end of the semester and I was compressed, and so I'm writing papers and doing final exams. Um, and you know, when the world was just starting to open back up, then that was right when COVID vaccine was was rolling out um, last last. This was, oh yeah, this summer, uh, this this spring and summer, right? It feels like 10 years ago now. Um, and, and so, you know, as much as time as you can give yourself to go into the experience, allows you to have conversations with people about their experience, allows you to do a little bit more research, right? Like get yourself as prepared as, as you possibly can be. All of that time is really valuable. So um, the Omari plan might work for you, but I would actually recommend sticking to the application deadlines um I, that that also works very well i also just a, a um little twist on the omari plan is the job that the, my chaplaincy job that i've been in for five years that i told you all to look at the requirements um for jobs that you might want and um i you know happened this the listing for that job happened to come across my email because I had been involved as a volunteer and it, you know, said, you know, requirements for someone who would do this job or two units of CPE. I had one 
ordination. I was not ordained. Um, and I applied for the job and there were 30 other people who applied for the job and who's the one who got it, this girl. Um, and so that is, um, historically men are more likely to apply to jobs that they're underqualified for. Um, and so I just want to uh, encourage women to also apply for jobs that they are in some ways underqualified for um, because, right, like a, a really thorough group of people looked at 30 candidates and said, you know, the, the person for a variety of reasons that were not captured in our qualifications, this person is the right person for the job. Um, so, and that, that's also, that's not just a lesson about me being fabulous. It's a lesson about me having had um, relationships in that place. The fact that I had been a volunteer there um, carried a lot of water as it should um, for them. And, and, you know, like the Brigham hires, the Brigham puts people into their residency programs who have done a summer unit and then they hire people who've done residencies. Um, so that's oftentimes if your end goal is to be at, you know, a big teaching hospital, oftentimes they're really loving to um, pull from within. I have one more question here in sort of the public phase and then we'll close down and we'll go into, into smaller groups. This is a really great question. How do you all manage some of the heavy emotional work you do so that it doesn't bleed into the other, your other jobs or your personal life? What a great question. <laughs> this is like the biggest boundary question you can imagine. Well, you know, I, I, I'll say this quickly because I know we're, we got four minutes. Um, we had someone come in and, and talk to us about that who ran the domestic violence center. And, you know, I was like, that work was significantly, it felt significantly heavier than what I was even doing in the surgical ICU. And we asked this question around boundaries um, and, and set, setting up the time. Um, and, you know, what the person shared with us, she said, well, everybody will tell you to Meditation is important, prayer is important. Um, and she said, you know, people will say yoga um, and all of that, right? And, and she's like, hers was red wine, right? And, and so, you know, she's like, um, you do what you need to do. And so she's like, sometimes I come home and, you know, she's like, I go in, I, my husband would just look at me and he would just know, and she'd go, you know, to, to her space, he'd bring her a glass of red wine, she could kind of decompress for a minute, and then she could come out and engage with the family. So I think you find your practice, right? And it's, and I would say, you know, it's, it's a combination of all of the above. Sometimes it was talking about it, sometimes it was prayer, sometimes it was meditation, sometimes it was tequila. Um, and, you know, and so all of that, you know, the combination thereof, spending time with friends, going out for a walk because summer was nice. All, all of that can be um, can be really helpful. And it, and it generally is not just one thing, it's generally multiple things. So something for me that I still um, try to incorporate in the, a lot of boundary questions and um, boundary performance, really, I guess I would call it, um, Something I read by Stephen Covey, I don't know if anyone knows his name, he made a big splash years and years ago with a book called um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen Covey happens to be a Latter-day Saint, <clears throat> but one of the um, 
uh, one of the interesting takeaways that still resonates in my life is how he says, um, after you've figured out what's important, um, ask yourself, you know, what is urgent and what isn't urgent. And in that category of important and not urgent things like self-care, um, try to be intentional about loading up on those as much as you can um, so during your day. And so one of the things I do when I map out my day, I, I still map out my day on paper every morning. I mean, I, it's just how I do it. And I map it out from meetings to tasks and then I have a third column every day. I have paper, I have you know loads of these, and the third column is that second category in the Stephen Covey plan of things that are important or vital to me, and not pressing or urgent. And uh, he he he's funny about it. He always says that's that's really um, the secret to happiness is living out of that out of those things that are important to you but not urgent because you have to tend to the urgent things, right? In life. So if you have a deadline, you got to tend to that. So, but you don't want, you don't want to be subject to the tyranny of the urgent always and only. So, um, so I'm, I'm very, that I, I just have that schema in my head at this point that it helps me to think about, it helps me to prioritize what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. Um, so, but I, I guess, uh, unfortunately I, um, Michael, I'm sorry. I didn't, I thought this was an hour engagement, so I'm not going to be able to participate in the breakout rooms, but what I want to say is, um, the wonderful thing about ministry is how it allows us to improvise. And there's great creativity in that. And so, um, Please know that not just the three panelists and, and Michael and professors at BU and other theological schools are so willing to um, continue to talk with you and walk with you on this journey. Um, and I just wanna say again, just, just believe, things might not happen on your timeline always, but, um, but we're all doing such amazing, cool ministries. Um, and it didn't happen overnight. It took time. So, um, so I'm so happy that you've tuned in. And Michael, thanks again. Omari and Lindsay, so good to be on the panel with you. I really look forward to somewhere our paths crossing again, maybe at a BU alum uh, event or something. Um, and Michael, thank you so much for all the work and, and bringing us together. And um, please know I'm happy to be available to you at, an, at a later date, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that it went to 930. Not at all. Thank you very much, Bonnie Jean. Thank you. Bye, folks. Um, I'm going to stop.